Welcome to Copyright Clearance Center's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Beyond the Book. It's Friday, May 4th, 2018. Our weekly guest on the show is Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly senior writer, who joins me today from the magazine's office in Manhattan. Welcome, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. After 17 years of legal disputes, Andrew, the settlement of a long-running class action lawsuit over digital publishing rights concluded this week when some 2,500 freelance writers received payments. As a matter of full disclosure, I was among those finding a check in the mail on Monday. Now, wrangling over the settlement itself followed a landmark Supreme Court decision in New York Times versus Tassini, which had originated in 1993 when then-National Writers Union President Jonathan Tassini and other freelance writers sued the Times and several other major publications for copyright infringement. Tell us about that. That's right. So the checks are finally in the mail, you know, and it's really odd for me to talk about this case in such final terms because I've been writing about it in some form or another for my entire career. The payments that went out last week have been on hold since 2005. But as you know, the genesis of this case actually goes back to the Tassini versus New York Times case. And one of our staff members here at Publishers Weekly, Sonia Jaffe Robbins, a copy editor, was one of the original plaintiffs in that case, I might add. So before we actually talk about the case at hand here in which the checks were issued uh, and the history and what this all really means, I'll just offer a little primer here for people who might have, this might have gotten away from over the years. Uh, the checks went out to about 2,500 writers this week. They were part of a 2014 settlement in the long-running class action case known it was In Re Literary Works and Electronic Databases, but it's commonly referred to as freelance. So we'll call it freelance to be simple here. But as you know, the Tassini case is the well from which the freelance case springs. Tassini, of course, was decided by the Supreme Court in 2001. Uh, So that case is done and settled. The plaintiffs have all been paid. It is, of course, the case that essentially created digital rights for writers. As one publisher once told me, it is the original sin of the digital publishing age. I thought that was a pretty good line. And as our listeners may know, Tassini arose after a number of periodical publishers, including the New York Times and Dow Jones, to name a couple, licensed works in their paper uh, that were written for their newspapers to these upstart digital databases, LexisNexis, etc. So the, the writers had argued that the publishers did not own the rights to do so. And after a long legal battle, the Supreme Court agreed in 2001 that absent permission, the publishers could not sell these works that freelance writers wrote for these newspapers in digital form without permission. And what a mess that created. When many of these pieces were assigned... The boilerplate contracts that authors signed never even contemplated the internet. So here we are. And that, of course, brings us up to the freelance case. The freelance case is a follow-on case. Uh, It's a follow-on class action suit that came after Tassini in 2001, and it was designed to resolve the mess that these publishers found themselves in. Without freelance, the publishers said they'd have to basically go through and pull all these articles, potentially millions of articles, because it was simply not feasible to go back and determine the right situations for all these works. So through this class action, the publishers hope for some kind of peace in the digital realm. And of course, the writers were looking for some kind of compensation for this infringement. And of course, it also didn't make sense that thousands of writers would file individual suits for these millions of articles. So they needed a class action suit to resolve this. I've seen many writers this week rejoicing over their good fortune on social media. Can you give us some details about the payments? Well, briefly, part of the reason it took so long to get these payments was because it was a complicated, tense 
negotiation involving a lot of lawyers and a lot of competing interests. And there was no small amount of lawyerly foot dragging along the way, too. But I'll get to that in a bit. But about the payments, you know, we can talk numbers here. And according to the Authors Guild, more than 3,000 writers had initially filed claims by 2005 that pertained to more than 600,000 articles. But in the final tally, we don't know the final number of articles. And we know that 24,094 writers were actually mail checks, totaling just under 9.5 million in compensation. 9.456 million, I think, was the final number. The publisher defendants also paid legal fees and costs here, and that was just under 4 million for the fees, and I think the claims administration expenses were $889,000, so a good chunk of change there. Uh, In a press release, the Authors Guild confirmed that a few writers actually received payouts in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, with the amounts calculated upon a number of factors, including whether the individual works were timely registered with the copyright office. But at this point, we just don't know other numbers. We don't know what the median payment was, for example. Uh, If you do a little simple math, you can come up with an average payment of about $3,800, but the average payment is really pretty much a meaningless number. Uh, And and that's because under the settlement, the claims were divvied up into classes. There was the A claims, the B claims, and the C claims. And the A claims were, of course, the strongest. They were the longer, more extensive pieces. Think of some of those, you know, 15,000 word magazine pieces for which the writer had registered a copyright and owned the rights. The B claims were works that were registered, but registered, I think, after the infringement took place. And the C claims, which made up the bulk of the claims, up to 99%, some people claim, were those where the copyrights were just never registered. And really, why would any freelance writer who was writing a 500 to 1,000 word piece back in the early 90s have registered a copyright with the Copyright Office? So there were a lot of those out there. Um, They were generally smaller and less expensive pieces. And do we know how these claims were broken down among the classes you just described? So at this point, we don't know the breakdown of how the money was divided among those claimants, but I am hoping to find out. And I've been in touch with lawyers and the administrators. I've not gotten answers yet, but I'm hopeful that I I can. I know some people were indeed paid real money. You mentioned social media. I know there were some writers out there that did get six-figure sums. I know that others received checks that were pleasant surprises, shall we call them, after 13 years, a little more generous than they might have expected probably having forgotten that the claim was even out there. Uh, and, the, and the rest of the, of the claimants got you know, probably modest amounts, um, but I'm sure they were also surprised and, and happy to get them as well. You know, but there's two things I'd point out. The initial settlement that the plaintiff publishers initially negotiated had an $18 million cap on how much the publishers would ultimately be on the hook for. And they came in, the final numbers came in well, well below that $18 million. Uh, in fact, just over the minimum of $10 million. So, you know, the, the $18 million cap was actually removed in the final settlement in 2014, but still, the publishers didn't even come close to that number. So after 17 years of legal wrangling, for the publishers at least, the case I think proved to be pretty cost effective. You know, they end up getting their complete piece. Uh, remember, this class action absolved the publishers, not just for the 2,500 or so writers that actually got checks in the suit, but for all the writers who didn't opt out of the class. So that's potentially, you know, rights questions cleared up for potentially millions of articles for about 13 million, including the compensation and the lawyer's fees. You know, all told, that's not too bad. And in the end, the publishers uh, had to pay plaintiff's lawyer's costs, like I mentioned before, and you know, about a third of the money's paid, and that's not counting the publisher's own legal fees, went to paying lawyers. So I don't think it's a stretch to say, if you look at the publisher's own lawyers and how much they paid for fees and lawyers on the other side, that the lawyers 
almost got as much as the class did here. Now, I'm not trying to say that the lawyers didn't earn their fees, just that this was really complex work. Uh, and I do think it says something, however, about how class action functions in the copyright arena. When Copyright Clearance Centers Beyond the Book returns, Andrew Albanese offers analysis on what happens when legal mixologists create a copyright and class action litigation cocktail. I'm Christopher Keneally with Copyright Clearance Centers Beyond the Book. Publishers Weekly Radio has the very best in book talk directly from New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. Join us every Friday for a full hour of exciting author interviews, best-selling books, and expert reports on the nuts and bolts of publishing. Every week, we make sure that you have the inside story of your favorite story. Take a listen at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Christopher Keneally for CCC's Beyond the Book. It's Friday, May 4th, 2018, and Andrew Albanese of Publishers Weekly joins me. We are examining the epic legal journey that is the Tassini case, Andrew. The original litigation began in 1993 and ended at the Supreme Court in June 2001. But as you've been telling us, the arguments continued in and out of court for another 17 years. So what happened when it came to the settlement? So the initial settlement in the freelance case, which was, you know, going to resolve all the claims that flowed out of Tassini, was actually struck in 2005. But almost immediately after it was announced, objectors surfaced. And that's not uncommon, of course. We've seen that in a number of cases. But their main claim was that the initial settlement basically screwed all those people with unregistered copyrights, which, you know, some people claim was upwards of 99% of the claims. So the objectors signed on. They wanted to kill the deal. But it was approved anyway. So they appealed, at which point the Second Circuit in 2007 shocked everyone on appeal by killing the settlement on an entirely unrelated jurisdictional matter, holding basically that the court didn't have the power to approve any payments to those with unregistered copyrights. So picture this. The objectors brought the appeal because they were trying to get more money for those with unregistered copyrights, and they ended up with an appeals court ruling that said they were entitled to nothing. <laughs> and worse, no one had even made that argument. The Second Circuit just kind of pulled it out all on its own. So that put the objectors and the plaintiffs and the defendants all on the same side, arguing for a Supreme Court reversal, which they won. Only then, the objectors had to go back and try to kill the settlement again, this time on the merits, which, amazingly, they did in 2011. So here's a neat little tidbit, too. In the process, observers note that the objectors also helped kill the Google settlement. And that's because in the ruling in the freelance case that that ended up killing the settlement there, the appeals court held that the class was just too broad, that more classes were needed. And if you extrapolate that to the Google Books case, adding more classes for the Google Books case, well, that was just going to be impossible. So people really said that that had an effect on the Google case. But in terms of freelance, the solution was actually pretty easy. They just added one more class. Uh, the unregistered copyrights class, the C class, they got their own counsel and they went back to the table and eventually the new settlement was hammered out and approved in 2014. At which point the publishers then delayed payments by challenging claims, I think, to just over 41,000 articles, individual article claims that had been made. And all of those 41,000 claims had to be tediously resolved. But finally, they did. They got them all resolved. Uh, and the final number barely met the $10 million cap, as I, as I mentioned, and it was significantly less than the initial cap of $18 million. So after 17 years of all this wrangling, 2,500 writers got checks, the publishers got their liability absolved, 
But here's what still kind of gets me about all this. What did freelance writers really get in the end? What they really got were these odious take-it-or-leave-it contracts, these all-rights contracts that periodicals started shoving down their throats. So it's hard to say that this case had a happy ending. In your view, then, Andrew, this case makes an important comment on what class action litigation can engender in the copyright realm. Exactly. And, and I think my point is, you know, we're now more than 25 years after Tassini, and we're still not addressing the core concerns of writers and copyright holders in the digital age. And class action just isn't set up to do that. Class action is effective for resolving past claims. But what we really need, I think, is a new vision. You know, call it copyright reform or call it whatever you want. But doing this sort of piecemeal thing via litigation has really not moved the ball very far downfield. And it really, to my mind, only benefits large corporations and lawyers for the most part. Now, I know this is all complicated stuff and we all have different views of how copyright should function. Uh, and that makes, you know, any kind of copyright reform very difficult. But, you know, 25 years after the Tassini suit was filed and 2,500 writers are getting checks just doesn't seem like terribly effective. And my point is that I think we're letting too many pitches go by here. You know, whether it's the music industry back in the day suing thousands and thousands of kids for using Napster or the Google litigation, I just think that all these years later, we have enough of a vision of what the internet is, of what it can do, of what it's going to bring, that we need to start taking some swings at copyright reform, right? We need to get at least, you know, start start trying to take a, a whack at this. I know it's not easy, and I know it's going to be messy, but I think we've learned one thing since 1993 when the Tassini case was first filed. It's that class action law, as effective as it can be in resolving some disputes, is just not an effective tool for advancing the aims of copyright. Well, you may be right there, Andrew. Either way, you help us advance the aim of informing listeners about the latest news in publishing every Friday. Thanks for joining me on Beyond the Book. My pleasure, as always. Coming next on Beyond the Book, in April, the London Book Fair celebrated Baltic literature and publishing as part of the 2018 Market Focus Program. Journalist Ed Nowatka wrote a comprehensive report for Publishers Weekly on Baltic publishing, and he noted that the rarity of the languages and the remoteness of the region make for exotic reading. I think we overlook the fact that these are very, very old cultures. Lithuanian, for example, the language is one of the few languages that's that's almost unchanged from you know hundreds of years ago. It's it's closer to ancient Greek in some ways uh, than than many many other other languages that are actually closer to Greece, if you will. These are just fascinating places that we, because of their relative um, you know obscurity to us culturally, uh, just get overlooked. Exploring Baltic books. Next on Beyond the Book. Beyond the Book is produced by Copyright Clearance Center, a global leader in content management, discovery, and document delivery solutions. Through its relationships with those who use and create content, CCC and its subsidiaries Rights Direct to Nexus drive market-based solutions that accelerate knowledge, power publishing, and advance copyright. Beyond the Book co-producer and recording engineer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. I'm Christopher Keneally. Join us again soon on Beyond the Book. Thank you.